kind of have to make sense of things again. Hold on, people can be trusted, can't be trusted. Now, what I do with all this pain, where does it go, right? I'm easily triggered. You got to be ready that the abuser is going to deny that. And is going to call you out for somebody who's exaggerating, fabricating, uh, dramatizing, precisely what an abuser might do. This is Hebrew Hits, presented by JTribeRadio.com. I'm your host, Malia, and I sit down with people who live by the motto, it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. Welcome to the 44th episode of Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia, and I'm so pleased to be sitting down with a really awesome psychologist today. Before we get to the show, I'd like to kindly ask you if you can please go hit that subscribe button on YouTube at Hebrew Hits Radio. I know that's where you're watching it. So you see that little red word, it says subscribe, go hit it. You can like this episode, comment, share, please engage in this episode so that we can get more viewers on this show. It really, really helps. Also, please go follow Hebrew Hits on Instagram and Facebook at Hebrew underscore hits. We are also available on all your favorite streaming apps. Well, right now, I'm excited to announce that I have Aaron Lurk on the show. He is a psychologist all the way across the ocean. Well, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm really excited to be on your show, Malia. This is uh, very exciting. Also, a first time for me to be interviewed in that way. It's like a one-to-one setting, but really it feels like a public speech. It's like uh, <laughs> <laughs> the same type of nerves. Um, really? But yeah, I'm very, it's exciting nerves. So that's good. I love interviewing people. Thank you. I love interviewing people like obviously on the show because it is just really a conversation. Maybe I should start doing live audiences within the Zoom. What do you think? Ha, I want to tell you something. You know, the, um, the I don't know the names, but there yeah, have yeah. been interviewers that have been used in psychological material mm-hmm. to learn from them how to have conversations. Really? Yeah. So you might uh, end up in the textbooks one day. Oh my gosh. Hello. If you need me for anything like that, please <laughs> yeah, let me know. Yeah, let you know. Yes. <laughs> so you have a very cool accent. Where are you from? So I'm actually from Belgium. Cool. But I picked up my English in England. Okay. So I left Belgium at the age of 15. I went to Yeshiva mm-hmm. in Manchester. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived, I didn't speak a word of English. So whatever I do know is from there. What uh, did you speak? Dutch? No, so mostly here amongst ourselves, we speak Yiddish. Um, I spoke Hebrew because my father speaks Hebrew. I spoke French and I spoke Mm -hmm. Dutch. And then English was added. Yes. And you've always lived in Belgium, like from after Manchester, you went straight back to Belgium? No, 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 no. no. So I was in Manchester for four years. Uh And from there, I went to Israel. And I was there for another seven years. So actually... By the time I came back to Belgium, I had not been here for a long time. Wow. Yeah. And I just want to say, before we even get to like the actual interview, it's going to be getting better and better as the interview goes on. I just want to say that psychologists generally pick at their clients and their patients' brains. I, right now, I'm going to be picking at this psychologist's brain. So I'm so excited because I've never done this before. So thank you so much for the opportunity, actually. You're very welcome. So tell me about coming back from Israel. You were in Israel learning, you got married there, and then you came back to Belgium. Tell me about that experience. 
So I'd already started to gain some knowledge and some training in psychology and psychotherapy mm -hmm. in Israel. And the plan was actually never to move back to Belgium. That was not the idea. Um, I, my wife is from Manchester, from England. Mm -hmm. And the plan was always that after a, a number of years in Israel, we would be moving back to England. But one day in my inbox, there was an email. Mm -hmm. God had a different plan. And <laughs> in that email, it said, we are running a school in Belgium for special needs, which I knew about. Mm -hmm. And somebody who was working there had passed on, he passed away, and they needed to fill that gap. And being that I was involved in psychology and it's in the helping profession, they thought this might be an interesting fit. So what would it be like for me if I would consider that option? At that time, I'd already been in Israel for, four, for five years, so I considered it. Wow. And you have not been working until this point. You were learning all in Israel, right? I was learning, but I was also already seeing people there. Oh, you I were? Seeing people. I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I had taken a counseling course at that time, and part of that course uh, was already to help you with in training and see mm -hmm. some people. So I started immediately, um, mm -hmm. and I, I loved it. You know, I, I, I knew I had found my, my calling. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew I would continue this wherever I was going to go. Right. But what was in front of me was, right now, the idea of joining a special needs school. So then you went back to Belgium. You had so kids already at this point, or I'm sorry, what was? You yeah, had kids, you kids. had kids yeah. at this point. Oh, yeah. you had kids. Yeah. Okay, had, and then kids. Yeah. So you went back with your two kids to Belgium. So first they said, "Why don't you come for a two week period to check it out?" Mm -hmm. Which wasn't a bad idea. Right. Um, I came. It was not a good fit, and I took the job. What? <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say you did not take the job. Why would you take a job that wasn't a good fit? Oh, that's, that, that's a good question. Um, this was God's plan. Basically, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. They were grieving. And they wanted to soothe that grief. Looking back, I'm saying they wanted to soothe that grief as soon as possible by filling the gap. Right. That was their side of the story. My side of the story was that I was eager to make my mark. I was eager to get started. Uh. And it helped that they offered a nice paycheck. And I anyway had to move away from Israel kind of at that time. Mm -hmm. So here was an opportunity. I was going to use it as a stepping stone. I was going to continue to study. I was going to continue to see people. Mm -hmm. and start to live the dream that I wanted to dream in terms of career, I'm saying. And it was God's hand because really it wasn't a fit. That's the truth. Wow. Did you hate every single day of it or when you were in the job, you liked it? I hated every single day. That's so sad. I want to tell you something interesting that I did. Mm -hmm. Every day on my way to work, I did a gratitude walk. And what I would do is just enumerate in my head the things that I'm, the things that I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't feel that I was pumped up enough with gratitude, then I'd go around the block again. Wow. Only in order for me to be able to push myself to stay upbeat, to stay positive, to keep smiling, to be able to do my job for these special needs children. 
mm-hmm. but it didn't change the reality. It changed my uh, state for that day, mm-hmm. but it didn't change the reality that that wasn't for me. And ultimately, after two years, uh, both the school and myself came to that uh, recognition. Do you feel like you have any traumatic, um, I guess, like situations right now because of the two years you hated every single day of your job? It's really bad to hate your job every single day for two years. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't say trauma. No, trauma is a is is you know when you're really experiencing something, uh, v- you know, very very challenging and difficult. I wouldn't say it was like that. It was just, um, it was not sudden. It was not out of the blue. I kind of knew what I was going in for. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to handle it, but it was tough. I hear what you're saying. So why did you not just go back to Israel? Like, why did you have to come back to Belgium? You look, said it was the, time for you to leave. Yeah. So look, the reasons why we didn't go back were the same reasons why we left in the first place. And that is, we didn't have any family there. Mm-hmm. We didn't have anybody that we would say, you know, let's settle here, although we loved it. We absolutely loved it. And we realized that even more once we moved away, I suddenly missed the weather and I missed the people and I missed the friendliness <laughs> and, and our spontaneous people where it was really, I, I had to adapt to so much. Um, but going back, nothing had changed. We still didn't have family there. So that was not really an option. So you're saying to go back to Belgium or to stay in Israel? Not to go back to Israel. So after we, you know, it was tough here to say, mm-hmm. you know what, let's pack it in and go back. That wasn't an option. And also, yeah. I have to say another thing, and that is that I also realized that God placed me here. There was a reason for this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had some. I had this wasn't just a mistake. There was clearly something for me to do here. It's just mm-hmm. I had to be open for it, wait for things to evolve. And let it happen. And that's right. exactly what happened. But I had to be patient. Wow. And can you tell me about some of those challenges you keep um, saying that you had when you came back to Belgium? Can you just talk about what those, those challenges were? There were quite a few, to be honest. The first one was this. When you, when you leave a place um, and you come back to that place after many years, mm-hmm you you kind of forget what that place is like um it's a little bit like when you see somebody's kid and then you don't see them for a while suddenly you know this kid is taller than you you say oh i you know i missed something (laughs) something changed something happened Mm -hmm. besides that whatever i had seen up to the age of 15 here was through kids eyes it's very different than living here as an adult so the main things that i found difficult Mm -hmm. was loneliness I was extremely lonely because despite the fact that I had here my parents and a very loving and supportive wife, I'd left behind so many friends and none of them were coming here. And I missed mm-hmm. it. I missed it terribly. The silence, the loneliness, basically from one day to the next really hit me like a brick on the head. Oh, yeah. And that was no fun. That was no fun. Um, I found it difficult to adapt to the mentality of the Belgian non-Jewish people also. If you think about Israeli mentality, the exact opposite. What do you mean? Rigid, very in the box, very square, not particularly friendly. Um, So it loses a little bit of a human touch. Mm -hmm. And it was tough. It was tough to adapt to. Can I tell you a story about that? Yeah, please. Sure. 
so we were living at first in an apartment block on the first floor, on the fourth floor. Mm-hmm. And on the second floor, there was this old uh, Gentile and he, a real Belgian guy. Um, and he did not give us an easy ride. Whenever he could complain about anything, he'd be knocking on my door. If it was the way my car was parked, it was the way I sorted out the garbage, whatever it was, he was there. Right. And I just tried to be nice to him. I tried to be kind here and there. I got him a gift and I would compliment him and I'd be nice to him in the hope that he would reciprocate, you know, that this would, this would have some kind of effect uh, both ways. Mm-hmm. Wasn't happening. Wasn't happening. And one day, all this changed. Here's what happened. Somebody came to say hi to my wife. It was on Shabbos. But she really came for just a minute. Proof being, she left the buggy downstairs, the stroller downstairs, mm-hmm. with her baby in. She ran up the stairs. She came mm-hmm. to say hi for a minute. She goes back down. The baby isn't there. And she starts to panic. I mean, she's a mother. Where's her baby? Oh my God. And my wife runs down. I wasn't home. And lo and behold, it turns out that this old guy, uh, the stroller was in his way. So it's not supposed to be in the hallway, you know. So it's like you've kind of uh, committed a huge crime here. He took the buggy and he put it in the garage and locked the door with the baby in. In the garage? Yeah, in the garage. Oh. <laughs> At that point, Malia, I realized that my attitude isn't working for this kind of population, for this kind of mentality. I got to change something. Here's what I did. Mm-hmm. I summoned him to court. So there is a special court here which deals with the, this kind of, you know, minor disputes, say. Mm-hmm. This took a couple of months. And during those couple of months, I, I didn't speak to him, which is totally not in my nature. You know, I'm, but I, I, I realized I've got to change here. It's not working. Mm-hmm. After a couple of months, we, we were both sitting in the waiting room of this uh, courthouse. And we walk in and it's a fine lady who is the judge. And she hears his story and she starts yelling at him. And she says to him, you need to learn how to be more tolerant. You need to be more flexible. And if you are living with neighbors, that's how you got to be. And if you don't like it, then you can live in a villa out of town all by yourself. Oh, my God. So I was very supported. I was very happy. But what surprised me the most mm-hmm. was his attitude afterwards. He suddenly became my best friend. Like, what? Oh, I just took you to court. Mm-mm. And then I realized something. With some people, and especially this kind of mentality, where he was, you know, softly abusing me, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to put them in their place. And if you do that, then they step down and they become very respectful. And suddenly he would open doors for me and he would say hi and whatever you say. And if there was meet, there were meetings, he would say whatever you decide that, hello. But... This was a learning curve. This was a learning curve. But it wasn't a pleasant one. That's all I can say. Of course, I learned from it. But it wasn't pleasant. So would you also say, like, maybe he felt like by putting you down, he was able to control you once you, you like, took away that control from him? Definitely. He was nicer? Yes. Yes. Wow. That's exactly what I would say, yeah. That is a crazy story. <laughs> I just, I was watching the show, I'll just say quickly, because it reminded me of it. And there were there, there was a cop and he was standing with the murderer and another cop said, don't put down your gun. And the guy said, if you don't put down your gun, I'm gonna shoot this 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 hostage that I have. 
the other cop said, do not put down your gun because if you show him that he's in control, he's going to kill you. If you show him that you're in control, it was this guy, it was like a whole psychological thing that he needed to be in control. And the guy was so scared that it was going to kill the hostage, he put the gun down and the murderer ended up killing the cop. But the cop that stayed strong and kept the gun up was not killed. So it's very interesting how that works. Yes, yes. I have to say, you know, there is an entire different field, which is the psychology of crime. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an entirely, entirely different field, but they talk a lot about that. Um, that's called criminology um, mm-hmm. or forensic psychology or forensic psychiatry. The, they are usually the ones that uh, either defend or prosecute cr- uh, criminals in court and so on. But yeah, this resonates what you're saying. Have you ever gotten into that or not at all? You stay away from that. Um, I have seen people in jail, but okay. I've never uh, gone to court f- um, as a clinical or forensic uh, psychologist. Uh, now, I've been to Belgium and the community is really cute, but it's, it is pretty small. And I knew that you just came from Israel where there's so many people jammed into it. It is small in Israel too, but there's so many people. Can you tell me some challenges that you face in a small community and the differences between Israel, which is big, and Belgium, which is small? Okay. Here's the interesting thing. The benefits of a small community, you only get once you settle well into that small community. Mm. So when you first settle down in a small community then you miss the hustle and bustle and activity of, 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 of a life in Israel, or perhaps life in various uh, places in America, right? Mm-hmm. I have to say that today, I love the idea of a, of a small community because it feels a little bit like a family. Like, mm-hmm. you know, most people and they know you, but this takes time. This takes time. So essentially, the challenge is the same. You settle, you've lost all your friends, but you're not yet really part of this new community. Mm-hmm. They might know your name, but they don't know what you stand for. They don't know the services that you offer. They, they, they don't really know you and you don't know them. Right. So, and, and this really applies, I think, to most people who move to small communities. You really have to give it a chance. You have mm-hmm. to give it a chance before you're going to feel the benefit of a small community, before you can judge whether you like it or not. Now, there are people mm-hmm. who don't. They really don't. They don't want to see the same faces uh, you know, again and again. But for those people that do see the sense of it, and the mm-hmm. sense of belonging that you might feel with a small community, the idea is to be patient. You've got to give it a chance for them to kind of accept you into their little family right. so that you can feel the benefit. So what if you're in a small community and they don't accept you? Like imagine you went back to Belgium. I know that they did accept you, but what if they didn't? How, what would you do then? I think that the first thing I would have to do is really think as to why that is. Like, um, what is it that I'm doing or not doing that is causing people to, to not accept me? I was kind of facing that challenge anyway, but not in a personal sense, but in the sense of my career, I was offering something totally new, right? I was offering a service for psychotherapy and I knew that the stigma is there. I knew that the need was there, but not yet recognized. And it's going to take time uh, for me to be accepted career-wise. But it helped that I knew that. Right. Now, I have to ask you this question sure. because it seems like it was very difficult for you to move back to Belgium. Did you regret moving back to Belgium? Very much. Wow. Very much. Yeah, very much. Yeah. 
Um, I, I want to tell you something. I'm, you know, we'll get to, into it later. You know, I, the online courses that I'm now developing. Mm-hmm. One of the main causes of depression is loneliness. We are wired to have contact with people. Mm-hmm. You've got to be in touch with society. You've got to have friends. And if you move somewhere and there is this in-between stage whereby you don't have that, mm-hmm. then depressive symptoms are going to come up. They're going to come up very quick. And the therapist is no different. We're all the same. We're wired in, in this way. It's a healthy thing. It pushes us mm-hmm. to be connected to people. And whilst I was going through these uh, initial stages, it was very tough. So sure, I regretted it. Don't forget that for my wife, it was also tough. It's not her country. It's not her place. She was losing her friends. So we were both in the same boat. It's very difficult to support each other when you're both suffering the same thing. Oh, wow. Because she was also suffering. So she was down, you were down. Yes, exactly. You each needed each other's support. So how did that work? Yes. How did you try to lift each other up? We we tried. We tried to keep our chin up. We tried to raise to the challenge. Mm -hmm. But there were moments when it was very difficult. We got through it. And we got through it very nicely. Mm -hmm. But we would both uh, agree that this was a challenging period. Sure. Wow. Did you ever go back? Did you ever leave Belgium? Like go to her, her where she you said she's from Manchester? Oh, we, we, we go all the time. We go all the yeah. time. Basically, all the Yom Tovim, I'm there. And uh, we sometimes just go for a couple of days. We go for mm-hmm. Simchas. Uh, we're very frequent travelers. We just jump in the car and go on quite a frequent basis. Now with COVID, that's not really possible. Right. Uh, it's about a nine-hour drive. Mm-hmm. But we're kind of used to it. Wow, it's pretty far. Now, I know that you said humans are wired to have human connection, communicate with people. I know that there are some people that are very much to themselves. They don't like, they don't like, you know, to talk with people. Do you think they're wired in the same way? No, well, the introverts have less of a need for it. Okay. They have less of a need for it. I would say we're all wired to need uh, nutrition, but there are people who just need less food. There are people who need less sleep, but they still need it. Uh, Don't forget one thing, Malia, it's very important, and that is that not everybody that comes across as an introvert really doesn't need it. This would take a careful assessment to recognize it. Here's an example. People that are socially anxious might come across introverted. They keep to the sideline. They don't mingle too much. They don't get involved. You don't hear their voices. They don't voice their opinion. Um, they, They avoid public places. From the outside, this might look like somebody who's introverted, but really it could be somebody who's dying inside because he's wired for attachment like all of us, wants the human connection, but is afraid. Well, now, do you think it's possible for someone to be completely social, love talking to human people, like to people, love going out and having fun, but is still so scared of that like social anxiety? what you're saying it is possible it's quite rare to be as social as what you're describing so extroverted so expressive it would be rare Mm -hmm. but it's possible it's certainly possible do you think it stems from something um if what stems from something social anxiety someone who's very 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 social and loves going out but has social anxiety if you're saying it's rare I think it's rare because normally the fear is so strong that it would make them retreat. It would Mm. make them back off. Now, let's be clear. Somebody who is very 
socially out, like what you're describing, mm-hmm. something would have to happen for them to become socially anxious. Okay. Um, it would have to be some major humiliation or rejection. And if that happens, then they could become very socially anxious, but they mm-hmm. might not yet be able to give up that, that uh, social life that they're running. Let, so take, uh, let's, say an, uh, let's take an example. Let's say a celebrity, okay, mm-hmm. who their whole life is, is the stage. Right. But suddenly they've experienced an incredible humiliation. It will push them to retreat, but there's a lot of pressure not to. There's a lot of pressure not to. So they might keep it up, but what will ensue from that is absolute inner chaos, Malia. They're going to go into major conflict with themselves. Something is going to happen. Wow. They won't be able to keep that up. That I can assure you. They can't keep it up. Now, as a psychologist, therapist, when you go out to different events, bar mitzvahs, parties, out in the open, do people come up to you and start asking you different questions about things that they've been through during the day? Or is it not like that for you? It is exactly like that, um, but it's changed. That means at the beginning, when I was still uh, set on breaking the stigma, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't. Then they, they didn't? Wouldn't. No, they didn't. No. Interesting. They didn't. Um, by now, yes. We've come a long way here. We've really come mm-hmm. a long way um, in breaking that stigma. I, mm-hmm. I think that it would even be difficult to describe what it was like right at the start. So mm-hmm. basically, I'll tell you something. Even when somebody would refer someone, they would be afraid to say, I'm referring you to a therapist, because that would be equal to saying to your face, you're a nuthead, you're crazy, so go Um, see a shrink. So how do you refer? And people would ask me, including Rabonim, they would say, how about we skip this whole title? Why don't we skip it? You know, why don't we just say that you understand the people, you're good to talk to, you're a good listener, maybe give some good advice. And I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not right, going along right. with that. I'm not doing this. It's either I'm doing this properly or I'm not doing it. I think that today they're very happy that I took that route, mm-hmm. but I really understand them that they weren't happy going along that route. But wow. consistency and honesty is key. Here's what happened one day. I was mm-hmm. referred by one of the local yeshivas, somebody, um, a bocher, and he needed some help because he was struggling with stealing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, wow. and, this is, and this is something that um, comes up. It's not a daily thing, but it is a struggle for those people that really have this urge. Mm-hmm. Um, it can even go so far as having the impulse to steal things that you don't even need. That kind of highlights that we're dealing with some kind of psychological disorder, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just jealousy or, or you know, that you, you want the, stealing the money that, that you're just seeing there. But unfortunately for him, he was not told that I'm a therapist. Okay. So he walks into my office and this is really early days, right? The beginning when I was here. And I wasn't going to play that game. He said, yeah, I heard, you know, a little bit about yeshivas and but as he looked around the room, it's not like I have any diplomas hanging on the room. I don't see the use. Um, but he picked it up and he says to me, what are you exactly? And I said, I'm a therapist. And his face fell. He was like, oh, so I was lied to. Oh, my gosh. I said, I don't know because I don't know exactly what they said to you. 
But let me tell you something. If you really don't want to be here, then you don't have to. Mm-hmm. This is not a jail. And I can assure you of one thing. Anytime you want to come back, my door is open for you. Wow. And he picked himself up and he left. I think it's one of the only times that somebody left mid-session. Usually if they're already here, I may as well make use of the time kind of, but he was so insulted. Mm-hmm. He left my office and about five minutes later, the door rang again. I opened the door. There he was. And he says to me, I just want to tell you, you can't imagine how much you've helped me. I said, I helped you how? I helped you how? He says, I can't tell you, but I just want you to know you did. I never saw him again. But the sense that I had then was that the openness and the honesty touched him. Mm-hmm. And that was basically my key. I wasn't telling anybody any lies. I mm-hmm. was going along with the truth. This is who I am. This is what I offer. I think there is a need. Let's see what happens. And slowly but surely, the stigma was broken. That's incredible. But why did he not, if you helped him so much, why did he not come back? I can't tell you. I don't know. That is such an interesting story. And Belgium is a small community. So you've never seen him around. You never heard of him. He was a Bokhra. He must have then left, which is typical for uh, mm-hmm. Bokhrim here to leave. We don't have Yeshiv Gdoyla. Um, oh. He must have gotten married elsewhere and settled somewhere else. And I have no idea. That is that is a crazy story. I literally would be like, he, you helped him, so he should be coming back and you know probably enjoyed what you had to say. But maybe maybe I don't know. Maybe just the honesty that he needed. Maybe that's what you're saying. It it was possibly, or I have to just be okay with not knowing. Right. That would I drive me crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's driving me crazy already, and I and I'm not even the one who like helped him. Yeah, that's one of the things you really have to be okay with as a therapist. I'll tell you even more. You can't ask any questions out of curiosity. Ah, uh, you can't. I would not be a good psychologist then. Well, you'd have, you, you'd get the adequate training, and it would be guided in that way. But you can't ask questions out of curiosity because every question asked has to be in the service of the client and and mm. in, in, in line with the goals that we're looking to achieve. That's right. I guess that, 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 that does make sense. I guess if you ask questions, even if it's out of curiosity though, you will get more answers and more ways to help your clients, no? Yes and no. The, the, say, say that I happen to be looking for a new car. Mm-hmm. And my client sits in front of me and he tells me, I just got a new car. And I'm very curious to know what car he got, where he got it and how much for, because right. I'm now looking for a car. That's not going to be helpful here. I have well, to put that it that Right. That, that I get, but you've never been curious. Let's say somebody was talking about a, a real, real struggle that they went through and they're saying this happened, that happened, but then they, they were too scared to tell you the main reason or the main thing that, that really happened there caused them all the trauma. You never want to like push their buttons a little bit. Yeah, I sure do. I sure do. But I think that that's going to be useful for them. Mm. If a client is hiding something, then very often I make a mental note that this is somewhere where I need to go. Okay. It might not be today and it might not be next week, but it's something that needs to be explored, expressed, talked about, felt. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're scared for some reason or embarrassed could also be, but 
you know, there is a saying that says you're only as healthy as your secrets. Secrets are not very healthy. Oh and a good place to share your secrets is in a therapy office. So yeah. this is not so much curiosity in such a case. It is a genuine feeling that this is going to be useful. I just have to get the timing right. I got to get the trust right. I got to get the setting right. And then I can, uh, you know, dig a little deeper. I was thinking about this, but I was like, if somebody really went through a trauma and then they start seeing a therapist, they don't know you at all. They never spoke to you. So yeah, you're a therapist, you went to school, but there's a big thing about trust. Like you can't just tell your secrets and share your traumas with everybody. So how do people just open up to you? I, I know that that's, you know, that's your job, but I, how does that like psychologically work? So there's a couple of things. First of all, there is just the, the knowledge, right? That somebody is trained for this and they're bound by confidentiality. Um, there are legal aspects to that. It helps. The second thing is that you're 100% right. It's going to depend on the level of damage. So let's say if somebody has been really badly abused and hurt by people whom they trusted, then I know I have a long way to go. I don't expect them to share their secrets for a long time. It's going to take a long time before they tell me what I anyway suspect, mm -hmm. but it's going to take a long time until they tell me that. And it's for me to be that trustworthy adult in their life at their pace. It's important for me for it not to be a game and not to be an act. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine um, until it clicks for them. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes it's 100% true. Sometimes somebody will tell their dark secrets within the first half an hour of meeting them. And another one will tell it to you half a, half a year down the line. Has there ever been somebody that never shared just because they just never trusted? Look, I, I don't have an immediate story in my head right now mm -hmm. of that, but I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Wow. How do you get somebody to trust somebody again? Because trust is a really, I guess it's a really big thing in life. You have in order to build relationships, especially, you know, getting married and that whole aspect. I mean, I'm younger, so like I'm not married yet, but I'm just saying in general, that's where my head's at. But how, how if somebody really like lost trust and they don't trust people, how do you get people, how do you get that person to say, okay, it's okay to trust other people if they really just don't want to trust anymore? Sure. So first things first, you got to be that person. It's not about any strategies or tricks. You got to really be a trustworthy person. Mm -hmm. You got to be that kind of person who is for real, somebody whom people can trust. If you're not, nothing will work. That's number one. Number two, um, what I do is I validate a lot the fact that you don't trust. And that tends to get these defenses down. Uh -huh. So instead of just, you know, plowing through and saying, listen, you really got to tell me it's for your own benefit. Otherwise, we're just going to waste our time. And no, I just give the message that as long as you feel the need to mistrust, I want you to do that. I want you to really only talk to me about the things that you feel very okay to tell me. I am telling you that this will never leave our room. I will never tell a soul. Wow. But I want you to only share with me when you feel ready. 
and you can take all the time in the world that you need to get there. And I think that that kind of talk, which is, again, it's real. I really am giving them that time. When you give them that kind of validation, they automatically start trusting you more. Mm-hmm. It's the people that push, the people that manipulate, the people that show their own curiosity. Those are the people they mistrust. The people that give them all the space, it has an opposite effect. The more you're giving me space to mistrust, the more I'm likely to trust you. You also seem like a trustworthy person. I know I've, I've with my career and podcasting, I've spoken to different psychologists, therapists, you know, people that I may possibly interview. And it was, it was interesting. I met with a few and one person was dropping people's names who this person may have seen. And I was like, this is not okay. Like, I don't want to, you know, like that person, I couldn't feel like I would trust. You know what I'm saying? You feel like definitely somebody who is trustworthy. You have never mentioned to me anybody who you've seen. You've never said any, you know, you've never really gone to detail about anybody else. It's more about just conversation with me and you. Thank you. Which is really, which is really cool. But the whole trust thing is, is a whole episode in and of itself, because I feel like we go so deep into why people don't trust. How can you, you know, say it's okay to trust a little bit and then slowly earn people's trust, you know, slowly but surely. You think somebody could ever get completely healed, um, like fully trust people, or is that guard always going to be there? I think if you've been very badly hurt, the guard is going to be there. Um, however, that can be that can be there to serve you, because ultimately not everybody is trustworthy. So to be naive and just believe that everybody is trustworthy is not going to serve you in life. So if it serves you in a functional way, whereby what you're doing is you're on the lookout, a little bit like Chazal say, you're, you're checking things out. That is healthy. So then life has taught you to be careful, and that's fine. Right. So you're saying it's, it's okay. If you, yes, yes. You don't I would trust. say any extremes are not healthy. So if I just trust everybody, it's, it, that would be as if I'm assuming that everybody is good and there are no people that take advantage of others and there are no abusers in the world, mm-hmm. but that's unfortunately not the case. If I mistrust everybody, I'm really going to have a tough time. Right. How am I going to do business? How am I going to have a loving relationship with a spouse? How am I, you know, li- life is going to get in the way. So extremes are never healthy. What people tend to do after trauma is take an extreme. Okay? Take what? Trauma, if it, it, it takes people to an extreme. Oh, okay. Okay. So a classic example would be if I had a car crash, I'm not going on any cars anymore. That's extreme. Mm-hmm. But that is what the brain does because the brain is looking to protect you. So the brain is saying, hold on, hold on. There's too much chaos here. It's too unclear. Wait, which car, when, you know what? Why don't we do an all or nothing business? No cars. Now, if somebody is being hurt by people, they might do that for people and say, you know what? No more people. Keep people far. Mm -hmm. You can do that. But another part of you is going to come crying. And that is the part of you that is wired for close connection. Mm. So you're mistrusting everybody. Great. So you're protected. You're not going to have any more that specific hurt that you've been through. 
fine, but you're going to have another need that is going to be unmet. So very often that is the goal of therapy. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost never to get somebody to the other extreme, which is don't be afraid of anybody. Don't be afraid of any cause. Don't be afraid of any danger. No, of course not. It's there for good reason. Mm -hmm. It's there to alarm you when, when it's supposed to. But we have other needs that we need to take care of. So balance is key. I would say that very often the goal of therapy is to bring people back to balance. Now, I want to ask you this because you are a therapist. Do you think, let's say we're talking about trust right now, right? Do you think it's possible for someone who went through that trauma and lost the trust in others to be able to gain the trust back in certain ways without going to therapy or is therapy really the best solution, the best way to help them? Look, the brain has a way of processing trauma. You can see that at work when you've got something that is really troubling you because it happened yesterday, mm -hmm. but six months down the line, it doesn't bother you so much anymore. You still remember it, but it doesn't carry the emotional intensity. Mm -hmm. That basically means that the brain did its thing. It processed it for you. That's great. great. When we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, then what we're saying is the brain didn't do its thing. So if you're as triggered six months down the line as you were the day that it happened, or you become very easily triggered, you had a car accident and every ambulance takes you back there. Anything that is related, anything that's associated with the trauma material brings you quickly back there, then it's very important and crucial that you get some help for it. The chance that you're going to get out of it by yourself is diminishing. So what if it's more than six months, like a year, two years, three years, four years, five years? That means that you you tried by yourself. It's not working. Correct. Yes. Then I would highly advise anybody like that to make use of any of the fantastic modalities of treating trauma mm -hmm. that exist. They should give that a try. So what would you say? How can someone get treated for trauma? So there are various modalities to treat trauma. I'll just tell you the ones that are uh, the most popular one. But before I do so, it's important to make a distinction between single event traumas and ongoing traumas. Mm -hmm. Single event traumas are a sudden humiliation, a rejection, a car accident, uh, being fired from a job, for example. These can be very traumatic, but they're a single event. When we talk about prolonged trauma, this might be somebody who sat in jail for two years and was continu continuously battered and abused. Or what I treat on a daily basis is childhood trauma. You can't ask somebody, tell me what happened to you as a child when millions of things happened. Watch out. It's not just the things that happened, but it's also the things that didn't happen. It's very important to understand. Trauma happens not only when a negative happens to you, it's also when the good that was supposed to happen didn't happen. Think about validation. 
when these things that the child needs weren't met, mm -hmm. we're equally talking about childhood trauma. Mm. In large, we talk about neglect, but essentially the symptoms are going to be the same. When we're talking about single event trauma, these are the easiest to treat. The most popular one is EMDR. EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> but it is a short-term therapy and it is not just appealing for its results, it's also quite appealing because it demands very little of the client. It's almost like going to the dentist and you don't need to do anything. You just have to open your mouth and the dentist does his work. So it's not exactly like that, mm -hmm. but it's not like we're teaching you new skills and you got to apply it. You got to have homework and you come back, which sometimes that's what therapy looks like. But in EMDR, something completely different happens. When Frances Shapiro developed it, she discovered it by, by, by fluke. And she realized that if you create movement or what she calls stimulation on two sides of the body, and at the same time, think about your traumatic material, it triggers that brain process that is, was supposed to happen, but didn't. And when you do that, EMDR has excellent results in reducing the emotional intensity of single event traumas. I have uh, something which consists of lights. I also have pulses, which are like uh, little vibrations. Um, it doesn't really matter what you're using. Mm -hmm. But the point is that anybody that's well-trained in EMDR should be able to help somebody with single event trauma very well. And it's a real shame not to make use of it. I want to tell you something. It's one of the things that happened to me when I came to Belgium. I ride a motorcycle. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's much easier to get around here in town. You know, there's nowhere to park. <laughs> uh, I have a car, but I almost don't touch it. One of the benefits you see of living in a small community is that everything is close. My office is about a seven-minute walk from home. My shul, one minute. The butcher, half a minute. The grocery, one minute. Uh, fish, another half a minute. The cleaner, <laughs> a minute. It's all right there. You don't need a car. Wow. Um, but if you do want to go a little bit further and you want to avoid traffic, you want to... Motorcycle is great. So mm -hmm. I, I am on to, I think, my third or fourth motorcycle. But mm -hmm. when I moved here, within the first year, I had a major crash. Not just was I on the motorcycle, but at that time, my little daughter, a three-year-old, was a child seat behind me, and we both went flying. Somebody drove into us from the side, and Oy. we were both in the air. This was horrendous, because she, Sippy, was unconscious, and I was heavily bleeding. Um, and, okay, at the time... Um, things seemed to like fall into place because ambulance arrived quickly. They treated us well. Um, Sipi left hospital after 24 hours. I was taking care of my uh, open wounds and my torn ligaments. But time went by and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Wow. And every ambulance took me back to the place of it. And I thought, hey, that's a good opportunity. Why don't we give an EMDR a shot? You know, I was learning about it, but I never needed it. But mm -hmm. here, here I am. I'm a good subject now. I think I only went for one session. It might have been a double one. I don't remember. Wow. History was taken. EMDR was applied. It was finished. I still remember it. It was horrible, but it doesn't carry charge. Charge is a very important word in trauma healing. It doesn't carry charge. 
So therefore, I have no triggers. And that no is way. that is that is an excellent way to to process it when it's so simple and easy to achieve. So anybody listening to this, if you've experienced single event traumas, I know it's horrible because I've been there. Look up EMDR. There's also an organization called EMDRIA, E-M-D-R-I-A. And if you go through them, you are sure to find somebody who is well qualified in EMDR. Get it seen to. It's well worth it, really. After only one session, you were completely healed? In In my case. In my case. I'm not saying that this is standard. I'm not saying that this is standard. And I'm not trying to come off here as in like this is almost a magic wand. It worked for me very fast. But in my experience from treating other people with EMDR, it does take a little bit longer, but it's still considered very short-term therapy. And they never think of those challenges and those that those they triggers don't work. They help. might think of it, but they think about it in a similar way to somebody who's experienced something some years back. That's very different. You think about it more dryly. You think about it more intellectually. Mm-hmm. And that's very different. The trouble with with trauma is the emotional charge that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about long-term challenges, it gets more tricky. There, it's not just the emotional charge. Mm-hmm. What happens is negative messages creep in. Negative beliefs about yourself and about the world creep in. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a bit of a longer a longer route to take. But nevertheless, it's treatable. It's really uh, what I'd like to tell people is not a life sentence. It's enough already what you've, yeah, it's already enough what you've endured with the trauma itself. Now let yourself be healed. That's so true. And for all those people that are scared to, I guess, face their traumas, even if it was a single event trauma or prolonged, as you're saying, um, they should, you're saying that it will really, really help them. People, I I think that. that people, yeah. I'd like to add to that. If you're really afraid of facing your traumas, then I want you to know that it's important you tell your therapist that. And what a therapist will do is they will establish some things before going to the trauma material. These are called resources. Mm-hmm. They'll establish a safe place and they'll establish a lot of soothing and there'll be a sign for you to make when it's getting too much for you. We're very sensitive about these things. We're, the last thing we want to do is re-traumatize you. That's the last thing we want to do. What we want to do is heal you. So we spend quite a significant amount of time for people that are highly triggered and very afraid in establishing resources so that we absolutely minimize that. There is even a technique, I'm not familiar with it, but I've read about it in EMDR, it's called a flash technique. And that is to make you think about a trauma in second, in just a second. And that seems to be sufficient. So I can't say much about it. Uh, but for those people that are really worried, look that up too. And you can even ask your therapist if they are familiar with the flash technique because you're so afraid of facing it. Yeah, I want to get more into this. But before we even get into all the other questions I have for you, I want to ask you um, how you fit into the show's mantra of it's what you do with what you have that makes a difference. So I know that you had challenges when you're moving back to Belgium. You're now a psychologist. Tell me about how you fit into the show's mantra. What I had when I came here was a mission. It was a mission to get people that struggle with mental health and get them healed, get them to help. And mission number two is to reduce stigma in general. Mm -hmm. But I had 
close to nothing other than my desire, other than my wish, and a very supportive wife to do something which was unique. I may do with what I have, which was just that, my openness, my looking around and waiting, uh, and waiting to strike as in, here I am, and I'm bringing something new here, which is, we're going to look it in the face, mm-hmm. people of our community, high class people, low class people, lots of money and not lots of money. There is mental health issues around and we're going to be dealing with it. So I had little, but I may do with that. Hashem, I also had a lot of Seattle Deshmaya. So mm-hmm. I'm thankful. I really am. That's amazing that even though your wife was also struggling so much, you're saying that she still supported you tremendously. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. To her credit. Yes. Wow. Now, let me ask you, since you are also, you know, a psychologist and therapist, you talk about victim mentality. How would you say your life would be like right now if you took on victim mentality when you first moved to be- back to Belgium with your wife and your two kids? What would you be like today? <laughs> Emotionally dead. A victim mentality is a natural state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your entire body and your psyche pulls you there. The trouble is, if you do that, you die. You die a psychological death. You will not be able to grow. You will not be able to face your challenges. You will not be able to um, achieve your dreams, your mission, and ultimately what you're here for. Mm -hmm. The victim mentality is basically a protective mentality. It's basically saying, okay, okay, okay. I kind of accept, you know, this this, this heavy... uh, material over me and I'm, I'm not doing anything about it it's a passive state mm-hmm. it's almost like saying if i move i'm going to make it worse so i'm just you know staying staying low i'm not doing anything right. it's a natural state but if i had gone down that route i'd have led a completely different life for sure you would have for sure absolutely yes even for myself not just for the community and for what i have been able to do mm-hmm. but even for myself, I think that uh, I would have sank away in depression. Well, and that would not have been good for you or your kids. Now you're able I to think so. healthy I kids. Would, yeah, precisely. Yes. Right. And when did your career actually get started? Because if you were, you know, you were going through those two years in the school when you first came to Belgium, you hated it every day. And now you're doing so well. You've built your career. When did this actually start? The truth is that it actually started pretty quick. Um, I was, I had just moved there and, mm-hmm. you know, going through the challenges of settling in and I was looking into a local uh, newspaper, a Jewish one, and there was a Chabad initiative and the initiative was to build a hotline mm-hmm. whereby we, people would be able to call in speak a little bit about their troubles, and at least they should be as much as a listening ear on the other side. They wouldn't say that they're professionals or anything like that, but they would be a listening ear. And even that, the stigma was very high. And so they spoke about having machinery that would make that you don't recognize your, I don't recognize your voice, you don't recognize my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't have any guidance to do it. And I just picked up my phone. I said, okay, what are you trying to do? Yeah, we would like to, to create this hotline, 20 ladies, I said, look, I've got some counseling background. Mm -hmm. Would you like some help in setting this up? And they jumped on it. You know, this is really what they wanted. Um, So I got in there 
and I supervised that group for two years. So first they brought over a trainer, Debbie Gross came from Israel at the time mm -hmm. and she gave a two week training. But once she left, I kind of took over and I gave them training. I don't remember if it was every week or every second week. Mm -hmm. We did role plays and I shared the things that I knew. Um, and then phone calls started coming in. And naturally there was a, the, in, in, the, in the large paper of re referrals, there was just one name and that was me. Mm. Only over time did we add also some, some non-Jewish therapists and so on. Um, the amazing thing is that the majority, I think, of that group all ended up in the mental health professional. One as a coach and one yeah. as somebody who guides people with eating disorders. Another one, everybody, the majority, ended up doing something in that field. So really something amazing came of it. But that was my start. So they started referring to me. And then over time, just word of mouth. But it started early on. And these people would call. They wouldn't say who they are. They wouldn't say their names. It would just be that they would not. just talk. Sure. Yes. yes. Totally anonymous. Now, I want to ask you, why would they, if you were not a psychologist yet, you didn't go to school, you didn't get your degree, why would these people open up to you, if you, you and those 20 women, if you guys were not, you know, actual psychologists? There's, there's a few a few answers to that. First of all, at that time, people didn't even, I, I wouldn't say everybody, but, but a lot of people didn't even know the differences in qualifications. They didn't know. No, if you'd asked them the difference between a psychologist and a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist, and a bachelor's, a master's, a PhD, most of them didn't know. The second thing is, when people are in pain, Malia, then they reach out. They really do. They're in pain. So people will seek help wherever they can. And lastly, I have to say that I, I have a hunch that it might have even been better because it could be that the fear of talking to an actual professional mm -hmm. was more than talking to just another human being who has had a little bit of training. And I'll expose myself to, you know, human to human. Uh. I think at that time, really, psychologists were reserved for the crazies. So if we would have opened up a hotline of 20 psychologists, I think we might have gotten less calls. Mm. So I think that the way it worked in order to reduce stigma actually worked in our favor and in the community's favor to start off low-key. Interesting. And you just said something that very interesting to me. When someone's in pain, they try to reach out to you know, whoever they can get to help them. Do you find that there are some people that are in so much pain, they don't reach out for help because they just think that they could heal on their own or they don't want to burden anybody. They think that their pain is just stupid. Like other people will think that their pain is stupid. Oh, other people have been through this. So my pain is clearly not so painful. So they don't want to reach out. Yes. Um, there are certainly people who will minimize. There are those people that don't want to burden the therapist with, uh, with their issues. Um, if I can say to those people, we are not measuring your pain. You know, there isn't even a tool to do that. Even in, in, in medicine, in the body, there isn't a tool to measure pain. We have, no, we have no way of measuring it. If you're in pain, we take you serious. We don't care about the story. It can be as little, the story can be as little as it is. If that for you messed you up, if that's keeping you up at night, we want to help you. 
even if so many people have been through it and it's like just the way of life that so many people go through that kind of pain like that's why maybe the patient want to want to reach out to a psychologist because oh it's just stupid but you're saying that it's not stupid if it there's nothing person. stupid about it if you have toothache because you got a cavity does it get less because so many people have been through cavities so you don't go to the dentist? It keeps <laughs> you up at night, doesn't it? it? It drives you bananas if you have a cavity and you run to the dentist. It's the same right. thing. It doesn't help. I never thought of it like that. I never thought of it like that. It's just like some people may think that their pain is stupid and like the psychologist would think they're stupid for feeling that pain, but then they just the can't mistake, get rid of it. That's true. I think the mistake what they're doing is they're looking at the story. Mm-hmm. I don't think they should look at the story. I think they should look at the pain. Reality is I'm in pain and it's inhibiting my functionality. I can't function properly because of it. That is good enough reason for you to get help. The story that triggered you is irrelevant. So do you feel that you built your dream? I do. Baruch Hashem. Yes, I do. But I'm still in the middle of it. You're not going to stop. No. You're just going to keep building. Not going to stop. Uh, right now, I am creating online courses in order to reach mm -hmm. more people. I wow. think what I'm offering is very unique because I'm offering uh, online courses for people that are struggling with various uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. But I'm also offering support throughout those courses. So let's say my first course, which is Beating Social Anxiety, which a lot mm -hmm. of people have taken. I'm really proud of it because the reviews and the testimonies have been fantastic. Uh, I offer a money-back guarantee. There's not one person that's made use of it. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm super happy with it because I've really packed it with so much material and so many interventions. But on top of it, they can ask me any question throughout. And on the platform, any question that they ask, I answer it. I pretty much answer it within the same day. Now I'm creating a course on emotional mastery to help people manage emotions better. I'm creating a course on beating depression so that people can make use of all research-based skills and interventions to help you improve depressive mm -hmm. symptoms. So my dream is continuing, Molly. I'm not stopping, and I want to reach more people. The more people we can reach that are struggling with mental health, the better. That's the mission. And what is in these courses? Like, is the patient going to be reading a lot of things? Is it going to be a video of you telling them, like, how they can get better? What exactly, how does this course run? Okay, so the courses, so as soon as you get access to the course, you get access to the platform. On the platform, you get access to weekly material. We call that a drip course. That means you don't get overwhelmed with all the material at once. Mm -hmm. You purchase the course on Sunday, you get access to week one. Next Sunday, you're going to get access to week two. During week one, you have about an hour and a half to two hours of work to do. The work entails watching the videos of me speaking with the help of PowerPoints that I've presented and created. Mm -hmm. um, then there are various worksheets for you to fill in, exercises to do, and for you to report on how it's going. When you've done that, you're ready to move on to week two. I've also made sure that the videos are relatively short. They're usually about 10 minutes each. Oh. So you can, you can just say, you know, I have 10 minutes now. Let me do one lesson. Mm -hmm. You do that, you can download the worksheets that come with it. It's really straightforward and really easily made. And I know that there are also differences between the level of energy people have. 
you see in depression, for example, mm-hmm. precisely the things that make you better are the things you don't want to be doing. That's a catch-22. Some pleasurable activities can help you, but you don't want to do them. You don't have the energy to do right. them. So right. I've taken that into account in my courses also. I'm not taking more energy from them than I know that they kind of have. I'm also not saying that the online courses are a substitute for therapy. Mm-hmm. But what I am saying is that very often, and especially in small communities, therapists have long wait lists. What do you do until then? What about the people that can't afford it? What about the people that are still afraid of the stigma? What about all those people that don't trust, like you mentioned before? I want to give them something. Now, the self-help industry clearly has done its mark. There is an enormous amount of material and books out there in the self-help uh, um, industry, and a lot of people have been helped by it. Mm-hmm. So we're moving along with 2021, and I'm modernizing the self-help. That's all. I'm happy that you said that because I was going to ask you if this is instead of therapy, but it's not. It's just. No, but I want to tell you something you should know. Mm-hmm. There is something for therapists also when somebody walks in and he's already familiar with the interventions and he's got questions about it. It's, it also makes it a little bit easier than starting from scratch. That takes a long time. It takes a long time. So if you can come in and you already know the basics, so you know where social anxiety starts, you've already done the assessments, uh, mm-hmm. you know what yes or not, you've measured the intensity of it, which is all part of it, on the, of the course. Um, you've started this intervention. This one was useful, but this one wasn't. It already gives a lot of direction to the therapy and the flow and the duration is going to be, is going to be easier and shorter. Interesting. Um, has your mental state been affected because of the job that you do? I don't think there is another way. I'm sure it has been. I'm (laughs) sure it has been. Um, Do you go to a psychologist because you have hear everybody else's stories? Like, have you, do you have to talk out your, your emotions? I don't have that. I don't, I don't feel that I have that need, but what Mm -hmm. I do have is uh, supervisors. I have a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly what we end up doing is more like mentoring, right? So for example, I practice, uh, I mentioned before EMDR, another modality that I use is DNMS. It's less familiar, less uh, popular. It mm-hmm. stands for Developmental Needs Meeting Strategy, which is to treat prolonged trauma. Mm-hmm. So whenever I use that, which is basically every day, so whenever I'm stuck, I'm going to speak to the developer of it in order to assist mm-hmm. me in that. But going back to your question about my, me- look, let's be clear. I am all day absorbing negativity. Right. Right. I would say this has some kind of effect, but Baruch Hashem, I think that I'm more focused on the progress and on the results that are happening. When I have a day when that's really not happening, and yeah, it hits me. It sure does. I think that mm-hmm. I have a nature that I can both feel it and that it shouldn't affect me too much. But I certainly can't say that I don't feel it. However, the thing that I think has mostly impacted me is that I'm in awe of a lot of people. You see, the truth is, I think I have the most interesting and complicated job that exists. I'll tell you why. Because, and you tell me if you think I'm right. What is more complicated than a human being? Even the most complicated uh, plane, it has a protocol, how it's built. I'm not minimizing these people. I'm sure they do a wonderful work, but it is is a protocol to follow. 
there is no protocol that you follow with human beings. Everybody is different. Everybody's makeup is different. Their brain is different. Their background is different. Mm -hmm. The traumas are different. So here's what I've learned. I've learned to respect people. Meaning when you see odd behavior, when people do things that you really don't get, then what I tend to say is there is a story here. They're not doing this for no reason. As odd as it looks even more so, the more odd it is, the more mm -hmm. there is a reason. Something is going on here. I suppose in a nutshell, I would say that it's made me less judgmental. There's certainly room for improvement. There always is. But I've learned over time and every single day of my life that people carry stories. And that yeah. pushes them to act, react the way they do. That's why I love what I do as well, because I realize that every single person is so amazing. Everybody has a story. Everybody's been through a challenge. Everybody, and the point of my show is to show that everybody overcomes their challenges. So it's similar. Like I know I, I've done some interviews and one specific person told me, he's like, it's so on the show. He's like, it's so therapeutic for me that I'm getting interviewed and I'm sharing my story. So it's so the correlation of speaking with people and hearing people's stories is very interesting. No. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you have a very interesting job. And I think that it ties into a similar mission. I think you're trying to get a message out there. You're trying to get mm -hmm. a message out there that people that go through challenging things and they sometimes have little with which to make do and they overcome it. And mm -hmm. that empowers people. It energizes people. Everybody's going through something at some point in their life. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I know that you just said that, that if people are acting a little bit funny, you can tell that they, this is stemming from something. So let's say you see that person that let's say you're thinking of right now, right? They don't think they have a mental issue. Are you able to tell if they do, even though they think that they're totally fine? Are you talking about in session or out of session? Out of session, in session, doesn't matter. Any person that you see, out of session, because if they're I in session... I try not to play therapist out of session. I try to be, uh, <laughs> you know, not what people uh, would expect of a therapist. I just like to... Uh, but... Because if they're in therapy, they know that there's an issue. But or, if, yeah. they're, if they're somebody that they think they're fine, but you see them and you're like, okay, I think that person may have a mental, mental issue, like, and you want to help them. So how would you go about either helping them or how would you go about like reaching out to them or would you just not it's a it's a tricky situation in general i would say i would not the difference would be if it would be a friend okay. so if i see things that are out of character mm -hmm. or i see them doing things that are not in their benefit, then clearly something stronger is at play Right. If you're doing things that are really going against your own um, interests, then clearly there must be another power stronger than doing the things that is seemingly beneficial. At that point, especially if it's a friend, then I'm likely to walk up there and say, hey, what's going on? You know, right. And I, I think you're going to like this, um, Malia what I try to do is instead of saying what's the matter with you is asking what matters to you. Something when... matters to you when wrong. It's not just a therapist 
that is therapeutic. A loving spouse is very therapeutic. You know, mm -hmm. marriage is not therapy, but there's nothing as therapeutic as a healthy marriage. You're constantly supported or you're providing support. Your friends is therapy for you. And like that person that was interviewed by you and said, this is therapeutic and absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And this is what I meant at the beginning of our interview. We are wired for attachment, for connection, because it's therapeutic for us, the giving and the taking. So I think if I would see that a friend is struggling, they're suddenly changing, mm -hmm. then not as a therapist would I walk up to them, but I would walk up to them as a friend and to say, I can see something is going on. Something is troubling. Tell me what happened. Right. Do people not like that if they are your friends or like stop psychoanalyzing me <laughs> or no? I don't get it a lot. I don't get it a lot. No, I think it ties in with what I said before. When people are in pain, mm -hmm. people want to be heard. People want to, people want to share. People want the support. Right. I think it's that kind of joke, you know, don't psychoanalyze me comes from people that are not in pain. I say, yeah, how am I feeling? So... But when somebody really is, I think they, gra they, they generally tend to grab onto it. So I don't get it so much, no. That's so interesting. And talking about traumas, how long would you say, let's say a single, you called it a single trauma? Is that what you called event, it? Single event, single event trauma. Okay, so yeah. So a, how long would you say a single event trauma could stay with a person? For life. Really? If they For don't life. deal with it? Well, one of two things. Either the brain will process it by itself, like I mentioned. If it doesn't, mm -hmm. then it can stay there for life. And I think it will affect them for life. Wow. That's so crazy to think that a single event could affect somebody for a life, for their whole life. Yes. yes. And you're, again, you don't think that people ever overreact to their pain. You don't think that. You honestly don't think that. Why would they do that? I don't what know. Would, what would be the game? What would be the purpose? Why would they be doing that? I'm saying not not even like overreacting, but like for for somebody, for let's say that person, yeah, it's painful. But then maybe the psychologist would think they're overreacting. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not so with what so with painful. what right? I don't have a measurement tool, so how can I know they're overreacting? How right. can I how can I know that? So I'm assuming they're not. You're assuming that they're not. Correct. Irrelevant well, I, of the story. Right. And we already talked about how somebody could uncarry their traumas, which is the EMDR therapy for single event therapy. Is there anything else they can do or that's the best option? I mean, trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would think in terms of therapy, it's probably their best option. It's probably the best. Yeah. It's also, I have another also got the most research. Yeah. It's most research based. Yeah. And is, the, is it possible? This I really want to ask you because it's very interesting. Is it possible for somebody to get back to a pre-trauma, like before they even had this trauma or even once they're healed? Or do you think that that person is forever changed once they have that trauma? The person's forever changed. You can't go back to pre-trauma. Um, the same is true for the body, right? This is also a known, uh, a known fact in physical medicine. Um, mm -hmm. The body is never the same after trauma is hit. So... If you break your leg and you then mend your leg, it's not the same as before you ever broke it. Now, you might not suffer from it, but it's still not the same. And what it means maybe is that one day when you go on a very long hike, you're going to start feeling something. But what I do want to say is this. You can be so healed from the trauma 
that the way it's changing you is in a positive way. So yes, it will change you. Mm -hmm. But if you grew from it, if you've taken meaning out of it, let's give it, you know, let's, let's, let's just say somebody has experienced something negative, um, but then they do something about helping other people in a similar situation. And they grew out of that trauma in a hugely contributing way for others. So the trauma has changed them, but it's changed them for the better. It's changed them in a good way. But to answer your question clearly, to go back to as if it never happened is not possible. No. Wow. So you're saying the innocence is taken. Yes. Once that is such a shame. That's correct. Well, so I, I really hope people don't experience trauma because it's just, it changes you as a person. It does. It does, it can. Not every trauma does, but it certainly can. And that's also our hope, is that to minimize trauma in every area of life. Right. Um, and I think that, to a large extent, these things have been possible to do, but not completely. And talking about victim mentality, I know that we spoke about this earlier, about if you would have you know, taken on victim mentality. I'd wanna, I want to talk about this for a second. Could they, is it possible for someone to be really pursuing their dreams and working hard and, you know, really actively pushing forth? And, and you would think that they are not suffering from anything because they're really working and trying to achieve their dreams, but they keep either getting, let's say, um, triggered or they get, you know, um, from their traumas and they, they do have a little bit of victim mentality even though they try to push it away, push it away, push it away. And you'd never be able to tell from the outside. Is that possible? Look, I think everybody has some wounds. Let's be clear about that, right? Nobody emerges from childhood without any wounds. That's not possible. Uh, um, don't forget that childhood is a very spontaneous state and as soon as you become two, three, your parents start giving you orders. They go completely against what you want to do. Don't stand there. Don't stand there. Share. Good girl. Now put on your pajamas. Now go to bed. Good girl. No, that's not nice. That's not good. You start getting a lot of conditions in order to receive the love and admiration. It's how it works. Then you get that same treatment in school. And these are all little wounds. Now, if they're not horrendous wounds, then you're going to be able to manage it. Mm -hmm. However, there is a saying by us, and I often use it, and death by a thousand paper cuts. That basically means that you've had a lot of paper cuts. One can't kill you. But if you've had one too many, it really starts having effect. Now, you might function. Mm -hmm. You might pursue your dream. But those wounds are not just dormant, they're, they're alive in you. Mm -hmm. What that will do is you will live a little bit of a reactive life. What does that mean? Let's say that you were wounded by your father. Mm -hmm. um, and you're still pursuing your dream. You're going on and you're, but it's a wound. You, there's, there's no question about it. We can't maybe call it trauma, it's a big word but it's left its mark. Whilst you're pursuing your dream, somebody crosses your line 
let's say a boss and not only does he look similar to your father but he gives the same type of messages in my eyes that's like saying hi to somebody by slapping their back but their back is already burnt so the slap on the back in itself was not very hard but on a burnt back it's gonna hurt a lot in other words the things that are going to be happening to you are going to have a stronger effect than what they're really supposed to so you can pursue your dream you can function but there's going to be something that eats at you on a regular basis one way to see that is if people close to you tell you what you know you're overreacting and you're overreacting again because the situation doesn't warrant that kind of reaction simply because most people don't take it so badly or they tell you something other interesting and that is that you're hearing things that aren't being said so for example your boss tells you you were supposed to finish this last night what happened but what you're hearing is you're idiot you're lazy you don't know anything you're just here for the pay i'm gonna pay you nothing you're if you're hearing that but the people around you don't think that your boss meant that mm-hmm then you are reacting based on old messages and old wounds. Another way to view it is that material hasn't gone from the inbox to the archive. They stayed in the inbox, so they're constantly in your eye. And anybody that scratches it is like scratching a wound. When you scratch a wound, it hurts more. I'm answering your question. Yeah, so how would you, what would you do to, to, to change that? That would also be EMDR or that would be something else? No, EMDR will not be uh, so useful in such uh, cases. They've come a long way to try and adapt it. Mm-hmm. But I would encourage anybody that is carrying childhood wounds to check out uh, DNMS Institute, DNMS mm-hmm. uh, Institute. Um, I've been practicing this well over 10 years now. And I can say, hands down, it's a fantastic therapy to help people heal from childhood wounds, both negative stuff that happened to them and positive that didn't happen. Right. That's the prolong. Correct. So I have to ask you this question also. Are are you ever like in the mood of doing psychology stuff on your own children or how does or, or not at all? Like, do you ever do that? I've tried to take out the, the, there are certain habits, right? That Mm -hmm. counselors are taught, which I think everybody should learn, Mm -hmm. such as how to communicate, how to listen, how to validate. So I love practicing that at home, but I don't think that I'm practicing psychology then. I'm practicing being a father. Right. I think this should be taught to absolutely anybody who is human. Let's learn how to talk nicely to each other. Let's ask people not what's the matter with you, but what matters to you. Let's listen without the intent to reply. Let's stop judging people because they're living a different lifestyle to you, knowing they didn't have your background, didn't have, they have different challenges, they have a different IQ and they have a different EQ. Mm-hmm. Make space for all that. That is not practicing psychology. That's practicing humanity in my eyes. And since you deal with this on a daily basis, and you see those people that come into you that have prolonged trauma because of their childhood, you know exactly what not to do. Like, you know how to be, it probably help. I mean, I'm not sure, but it probably helps you say, okay, I'm going to make sure that my kid 
doesn't turn out like this or, or does that not even enter your your mind no uh, first of all i'd skip the word i know exactly what to do you you can never really be in somebody else's head fully you really can't i can say that i really try mm-hmm. um i also think that yeah it's been very useful to know which type of unmet needs really have a lot of effect later on mm-hmm. i'll give you one example of that that is attunement a child needs the parent to tune in to what they've experienced. In your eyes, they're crying over something little. Mm-hmm. But think about it. It's not little to them. Their little car is no different than your car for you. It's the same thing. You also right. cry when somebody bashes your car or your laptop or your phone. It's the same tune in bend down and say that is so upsetting i'd also be devastated if somebody did that to my phone that attunement is crucial for the development of kids when that's missing Mm -hmm. then i can tell you and i'd like to share this also with all the viewers and listeners here that is an unmet need that will harm the child and if that's happened to Anybody listening, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But again, if that's what's happened, DNMS is an excellent model of therapy to help you get that. Like, how do we fix something from the past mm-hmm. in real time? Like, we can't change the past. How do we go back there, right? Right. Hold the question and give it a try. Before we go, I want to ask you another question. Now, I'm not sure if you ever got asked this question before, but is it smart for someone to confront their abuser? Yeah, sure. I've been asked that. It's a, oh, yeah. it's, it's a very, it's, it's a, it's, it's a very good question, by the way. Thank you. Um, it is smart in principle, mm-hmm. but you've got to be very healed in order to do it you got to be ready that the abuser is going to deny that and is going to call you out for somebody who's exaggerating, fabricating, uh, dramatizing, precisely what an abuser might do. There's a small chance that they're going to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, I never knew that this had this kind of impact on you. They apologize, they make amends, they pay for your therapy. It happens, but it's fair, right? But I want to tell you something. I remember it was also early days and I had a young man that really had a terrible childhood and he was determined to confront his parents, his mother. And I didn't think that, you know, that this was so wise at the stage where he was at. But I remember him one day coming in and saying he did it and she was so supportive and so it was so healing for him. So it kind of worked out, right? Wow, but I'm not taking amazing. that as a model. I'm not taking that and say, tell, tell people to just go out and do that. I want to say something else about that. And that is, mm-hmm. it might sound a little bit strange what I'm about to say and uh, not exactly the same as confronting your abuser, but we do a lot of that in therapy whereby we let the inner child speak out what you couldn't say back then and you say it now in your mind facing them. And you should know that for the people that have experienced negative stuff, this is very, very, very healing. And they might not feel as much the need to confront their abuser later on. If that's still 
a necessity for them, mm-hmm. it can be negotiated and it's certainly their right, right? But I'd like to make them strong enough to be able to cope if the uh, person in, in question doesn't react appropriately. But I would ask them to wait until we've done this therapy to see whether that's still so necessary for them. Interesting. Now, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? I would like to say that as a human being, I think that everybody at some point in life has psychological struggle. It's not possible otherwise. We are filled with conflict. We're filled with challenges. We are filled with emotions. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's normal. And I would like to tell everybody to stop playing a game as if that's not happening in the world. It is. You're human. The second thing is, if you feel that it's overtaking you, get the help. There is so much out there today. It's not like 20 years ago. It's not like 30 years ago. And it's never too late. As long as your brain works and your emotions are working, therapy can work. It doesn't matter how old you are. Try it. Get a competent therapist. And if the person in your community is full, there is Zoom today. There is Skype. And the world has become in a sense, one community. There is relief where you can reach out to to help you with appropriate referrals. There is so much today. It's really a shame to be out there to suffer and not try to get the help. And that's a very important message that I would like to convey. And if people want to get in touch with you, how would they get in touch with you? The best way is through email, right? Which uh, I'll give you and you can... uh, I'll put it right here. Yeah, okay, fantastic. So email, I'm very good at answering. Mm -hmm. I'm not very good at taking on new clients simply because I'm full, but that's also partly why I'm doing the online courses. And you will get my support throughout the uh, lessons and the courses if that's what you choose to do. Mm -hmm. But in general, any kind of guidance or ideas, if you email me, the chance that you get a reply from me is close to 100%. Wow, okay, great. So they are going to, I'll put your email down below and they'll send you an email. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Malia. It's absolutely in line also with uh, what I want, which is to, which is to get the messages out there. I hope you enjoyed picking my brain. I did. I still have so much to say, but that will have to be for another interview. Sure. No problem. I look forward to that. You just listened to the 44th episode of Hebrew Hits. I'm your host, Malia. And that was psychologist Aaron Lurch all the way from Belgium. I'm so honored to have had him on the show. I got to pick at his brain. This was really fun. Please go email him if you have any questions. And you're watching on YouTube right now. So please hit that subscribe button. Come on right here. If you see it, the subscribe down below. Please hit that subscribe button. Like this episode, share this episode, comment, please engage. It really helps me with getting more people to watch the show. And you can please go follow Hebrew Hits on Instagram and Facebook at Hebrew underscore hits. We're also available on all your favorite streaming apps. Again, I'm your host, Malia. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Very much looking forward. Thank you very much, Malia. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. (laughs) Likewise. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye.